Well, good morning. So, it's beginning to feel a bit more like Christmas with the cold air blowing in and seeing more and more decorations around. Enjoyed the, uh, the fellowship last night with our Christmas party, and I didn't really get the opportunity last night, but wanted to just take just a moment to express my deep appreciation uh, for you. For those of you that weren't there, there was there was a gift given to the uh, leaders at Canton Bible Church, and just as an expression of gratitude, and uh, didn't really get a chance to say thank you for that, because it, uh, it really warms my heart. In some ways, it's hard to receive anything, because it's such a joy to be able to just be with you all and to serve alongside you all in this church. And so it really, it warmed our heart. It was, uh, it was greatly appreciated, more because of the gesture and the love that you share than it is for the gift itself. So Thank you all so much. We love you. We cherish you. It's, uh, it's fun to be able to pause this time of year and enjoy these extra times of fellowship and opportunities to just express that uh, thankfulness we share for one another. So uh, it was a joy to do that last night. I hope, uh, hope you, for those of you that are able to attend, that you uh, enjoyed and were edified by our time together. This morning we're going to do something a little bit different. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've just finished a section in Matthew 18. It's a relatively familiar section, uh, often called a section on church discipline, which, as we talked about, is really an unfortunate uh, moniker or nomenclature. It's really much more about rescuing fellow believers, rescuing them from sin. And as you get to the end of Matthew 18, it really focuses on this topic of forgiveness. And as we transition into kind of the Christmas season and the new year, I wanted to pause at the end of really what has been a very significant and weighty section of Scripture to take a little more time to talk about what forgiveness looks like in practicality. At the start of the Civil War, there were a few persons who really believed it was going to last more than a few weeks. They certainly did not believe it would be a drawn-out conflict, costing the lives of hundreds of thousands. In fact, most of the Union Army's recruits at the beginning of the war had only signed on for a special 90-day enlistment. That was it. That was all they thought they would need for the war. On the morning of the first major land battle of the Civil War, the first battle of Bull Run, there were many civilians from Washington who rode to the nearby hillside to observe firsthand this battle, bringing with them, many of them, children, picnic baskets, and opera glasses. Little did they know the bloody and gory day that was ahead or the four long years that were to follow. Before that day was over, the picnickers had fled in mass panic, along with senators, journalists, and other onlookers. Nearly 5,000 lives were lost that day, and it was really a harbinger of what was to come. When it comes to battling bitterness and anger when sinned against, when it comes to resisting the temptation for vengeance, and really this fight for forgiveness. We do not want to make the same naive mistake 
as those picnickers and onlookers that day who assumed that it would be short-lived, that this would be easy. Our war against bitterness, our war against sin will often be drawn out, lasting days, weeks, months, sometimes even years. You may eventually get to the point where the skirmishes are few and far between, but they're still going to arise, often when you least expect them. And it's at that moment that you must be prepared and determined to fight. But the question becomes is, how will you fight? What spiritual weapons are at your disposal? What spiritual strategies can you employ? And this is really where I want us to spend some time this morning is we seek to synthesize and bring together some of the lessons that we have learned over the past few weeks while studying forgiveness from Matthew 18. We really want to address the questions of what does forgiveness look like in everyday life? We approach this text, Matthew 18, and the topic of forgiveness with the desire together to learn what the exhortation and instruction means to forgive as Christ forgives. And if we were to provide a brief list or description of what we have learned about forgiveness from our study these past few weeks, we, we might include such things as forgiveness is to be unlimited. Forgiveness is to be graciously given. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiving others is an accurate measure of my spiritual health and my security in Christ. Withholding forgiveness brings judgment. Full biblical forgiveness is conditioned on repentance. The practice of forgiveness itself requires the laying aside of all bitterness, wrath, anger, evil speaking. And while these observations are all true, it's one thing to affirm them while sitting here in a sterile environment, isn't it? Where it's peaceful, we've just enjoyed singing together. But what about when you get home and things get messy? How do you respond when your brother or sister takes something that's yours? Or says something to aggravate you, knowing how to push your buttons? How do you respond when someone says an unkind word to you? How do you respond to lies or slander? How do you respond to someone stealing a promotion from you or undermining you at work? How do you respond to children who sin the same way over and over and over again? How should you respond to physical or spiritual abuse now or in the past? Especially if the person is no longer living. How do you respond and what would you tell someone who has lost their family member to a drunk driving accident or a horrific crime? And then what do you do with the unrepentant? The person who shows no remorse. This is the reality of the world in which we live. And this is really where things get messy. Where we have to deal with how do we handle the frustration, the anger, the bitterness that arises, all while trying to follow Scripture's instruction to forgive. And we've touched upon some of these topics in the past few weeks, at least preliminarily. 
But coming off of such an important topic, I do think it's wise that we take some time this morning to think carefully about applying forgiveness in a fallen and sinful world. Not in a clinical way, but in a very practical way. And you may not think that this topic or sermon has much to do with Christmas. In fact, you may be sitting here thinking this morning, or maybe it's the person next to you, couldn't we have had a nice sermon, just peaceful leading into Christmas? But I really want to suggest that it is very fitting to talk about the topic of forgiveness as we head into Christmas. God became a babe for the very purpose of offering forgiveness to sinners in this world to rescue us from our enslavement to sin, from our enslavement to bitterness and to anger and to so much more. So it's actually very fitting that we take the time to think practically about the topic of forgiveness that was important enough for the creator of the universe to humble himself, to become a servant to all, offering the hope and the freedom from sin and eternity in the kingdom of heaven. If you would, pray with me as we, again, contemplate this rather difficult subject, especially when we begin to apply it to the messiness of life. Father, we come to you this morning rejoicing as we do this time of year in the advent and the birth of your Son. Father, we ask for your help this morning coming to you, acknowledging our weakness, praying for the wisdom that your Spirit alone can provide to help guide us and lead us into not only an understanding of the truth, but to an applying of the truth in our lives. Father, we do desire to be a people that follow you, that emulate you, that forgive as you forgive, that lay aside bitterness, anger, and frustration when suffering difficulties, trials, and persecutions in this life. And yet, Father, we also confess that we are weak. Father, teach us this morning what it means to walk by the Spirit in this way. Help us to lean in upon you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. As I was thinking about the, the best way to really serve as our anchor this morning, maybe the best text to serve as our anchor, I struggled a bit. When I thought about what text best helps us to think about how to avoid bitterness while trying to practice forgiveness in this fallen world, especially maybe particularly with the unrepentant. But I didn't struggle for the reason you may think I was struggling. It's not that there are no topics, no passages that address this topic. It's that there's so many. We could have gone to Psalm 34, could have gone to Psalm 37, or Psalm 73, Romans 12, 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, just to name a few of the texts that walk us through this important topic. In the end, though, I settled on Hebrews 12, 14 through 15. You can open your Bibles there this morning. We're going to be jumping around a lot, but this is where we're going to start to anchor ourselves. Honestly, if I were to study again and preach this same sermon next Sunday, I 
might end up selecting a different passage because there are so many passages that are rich in this teaching. But I think it's helpful to anchor ourselves in a specific passage rather than just attempting to answer questions so that we can follow the logic and the leading of the Spirit. It is, after all, the Spirit whom we grieve when we are unforgiving, when we are bitter. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 telling us that when he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so with that in mind, look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. The writer of Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. As one pastor noted, one of the reasons that people become so discouraged in the fight against resentment and bitterness when they are hurt and sinned against is that they expect an instant solution, a magic switch that will help them stop thinking about a wrong that's done to them. If only I could just turn the switch and forget about the wrong that was done to me. And while God does sometimes give immediate victory or relief, more often it's slow in coming. It's a matter of striving day after day to focus on Jesus Christ rather than focusing on ourselves and those who have hurt us or sinned against us. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was addressing this preventing this root of bitterness from springing up. Because it's, if you live in this world, if you walk in this world, you are going to be hurt, you are going to be sinned against. Now, as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2, we're not to complain when we suffer for doing what's wrong. You don't get to say when you sin, oh man, things are hard. He says there's no reward for that. There's no commendation for that. Instead, he says, but if you suffer while living righteously. And that's where our attention really needs to focus, is on living in this world, seeking to do what's right, and avoiding the bitterness that comes when life is hard, when life is difficult. It's this day-to-day grind that is wearisome. We know that forgiveness and cultivating a heart oriented toward forgiveness is the right thing to do, but we can't seem to get our emotions in line. Our feelings don't fall in line right away. So what do you do then? In this case, very often we feel like Paul who cries out in Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. So how do we overcome this? What do we do in those times? How do I battle bitterness? How do I battle resentment? Perhaps you've had the question I've had. Am I a failure or even worse, even a Christian because I struggle with forgiveness and these emotions or attitudes? When I can't forgive right away, when I struggle with ongoing bitterness, what's wrong with me? 
First, I want to encourage you that you're not a failure simply because you struggle. The very fact you're struggling likely means that your conscience has been awakened. It's been made alive by the Spirit. Take encouragement in that. My greater concern is when someone has given up, they've embraced the bitterness, and they've just chosen to live with anger, resentment, and hatred, and lack of forgiveness. And this is really a, a good time to insert something that normally would come at the end of a message. You see, much of what we're going to be talking about this morning is for the believer. And if you're sitting here and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not experienced the forgiveness He offers, if you have not cried out to Him, crying out for mercy, and experienced the forgiveness that He offers, then what I'm going to say this morning is really going to frustrate you a lot. Because you're not going to be able to do it. At least you're not going to be able to do it and experience the peace that comes, the joy that comes, the promise that comes, the hope that comes. And so if you are here this morning, as you hear these words and this discussion of forgiveness, as you begin to feel more and more frustrated, your response this morning is to cry out to God. To say, Lord, help me. I can't do this. Forgive me. For the believer, this struggle is really a place where the doctrine of sanctification, or we might say progressive sanctification, is very helpful and very practical. This is where the writer of Hebrews actually tells us to begin, doesn't he? After exhorting us to pursue peace with all men, he says to pursue sanctification. Sanctification is one of those $3 church words, but it's an important term to understand. It refers to, very simply, being and becoming like Jesus. But that descriptor is also important, that progressive. It means that it's a process. It does not happen instantaneously. It is a continual process on this earth. And the process of sanctification, what that looks like is God, who knows you better than you know yourself, knows your weaknesses better than you do, is going to bring people, he's going to bring events into your life in order to work away your rough spots, to chip away at the sculpture of your life as he shapes you into the image of Christ. Consider what Paul says to the Philippians through the Spirit. When he says in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And similarly to the Colossians, he wrote in Colossians 3.10, And have Put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And while God is working to shape us, there's also an active role we play. We see this in 2 Corinthians 7 1. We read, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And again in Romans 6, 11-14, we're exhorted, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. 
And do not go on presenting the member of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So what does this look like in everyday life? Let's take the abstract and try to make it more concrete. What does it look like when you're sinned against, when you're hurt, when you're slandered, when you've been abused? Working our way to the more concrete, it begins with having to work hard to be like Christ. What you need to understand is that while you may experience the occasional leap forward in this sanctification and becoming like Christ, you need to understand, you need to have the expectation that the experience is more like inching forward up a mountain in a snowstorm. So the question we once again ask is, what must I do in this process? What are my weapons? What are my tools? What is my strategy? Well, to answer this question, I want to spend most of our remaining time in one of the Psalms, Psalm 73. Now, this is a longer psalm. If you know anything about me, you know I love the Psalms, so this is an exercise in discipline on my part. We'll see how well I do. I love the Psalms because the psalmists are often willing to express what we are not because it doesn't sound Christian. We get to hear their inner thinking, their inner thoughts, as they work through these emotions, these afflictions. Psalm 73 is a psalm by Asaph. After David, Asaph is one of the most prolific psalmists in the Old Testament. And in Psalm 73, Asaph expresses his struggle against sin and despair and how he almost gave up. Almost. In fact, the first 14 verses describe the internal struggle he has of watching the wicked prosper on this earth. Everywhere he turns, the wicked, those who do what's wrong, seem to be just fine. Not just fine. They seem to be exceeding in everything. Riches, wealth. Prosperity. Life seems to go easy for them. All the while, as we learn down in verse 14, they are persecuting and attacking righteous Asaph. Believing Asaph. And so Asaph asks in verse 13, Is it all in vain that I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence? In other words, Asaph is asking, should I have taken vengeance into my own hands? That's what he's asking. Should I have taken vengeance into my own hands? Should I have just lashed out in my anger, in my bitterness, because that's what the wicked would do? And I doubt there's a single one of us who has not thought at some point or perhaps even acted upon that thought. What happens next, however, beginning in verses 15 and 16, is very instructive to us. Because Asaph says that if he had done that, 
if he had acted out in retaliation and in vengeance, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And he goes on to say, and it was troublesome in my sight. This is something you might read over very quickly if you were just reading the entire psalm. But look at what Asaph is declaring. Had this been his final conclusion, if Asaph's determination would have been, I give up. This is not worth doing. I'm, not fighting, I'm done fighting against bitterness. I'm done waiting on God for vengeance. Then he says the consequences would have affected everyone around him. Specifically, other faithful believers. The term generation of your children is a reference to faithful Israelites, those specifically who love the Lord. Not all Israelites loved the Lord. These are those who loved the Lord. And notice how Asaph describes the effect of bitterness down in verse 21. He notes that when his heart was embittered and pierced within, he became like a senseless and ignorant beast. Isn't that a perfect description of what bitterness and anger does? It makes you act almost animalistic in your responses. You don't think, you just respond. You just act out. You lash out with anger. You strike out in self-defense. You seek to hurt the other person and anyone who gets in your way. Now, you might be thinking when it comes to vengeance and retaliation that you've never sought severe physical violence against another person. This is where we need to be reminded that taking vengeance only sometimes refers to physical violence. Think about these other examples of what taking vengeance could look like. Have you ever yelled at someone after they hurt you? Have you ever given someone a cold shoulder after being offended? Have you ever refused to let your brother or sister or friend play with you because you, they hurt your feelings? When a spouse chooses to withhold affection as retaliation for some offense? What about when we say hurtful things, true or untrue, in response to what another has done? To talk about them in a way to hurt them behind their back. All of those are, and more, are different manifestations of taking vengeance, of retaliating. It's an effort to hurt another person because you've been hurt, you've been mistreated. And I'm not talking about issues of safety or discretion. I'm talking about trying to hurt someone, trying to retaliate, to take vengeance. As we've seen over the past several weeks, as we're reminded even this morning, from Romans, from 1 Thessalonians 5 and others, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Let God do it in His timing, even if it means waiting for eternity. Turning back to Asaph's words in verse 15, Don't miss the fact that becoming bitter, angry, and resentful, that retaliating and taking vengeance into your own hands has far-reaching effects. It doesn't just hurt the one who hurt you. It'll hurt those around you. There is going to be collateral damage. As we saw in our study of Jonah this summer, sin is never content to just harm the one sinning like an earthquake that, quake that launches a tsunami. The effects 
and the destruction will be felt long afterward. And so in verse 17 of Psalm 73, we see the turning point for Asaph. Now, we don't know what took place that day he went to the temple to worship, but it was when he gathered together to worship the Lord with faithful, God-fearing Israelites that he gained perspective. And this perspective is what is so critically important in our fight against sin. Specifically against the temptation to envy the wicked, to resent those hurting us, to retaliate against those who have hurt us, to move to the point of forgiving. You see, we think that the harm done to us is the worst thing possible, that getting justice for that is what has to be done. What Asaph is telling us is that when he went to the temple, when he worshipped the Lord, the full perspective came into view. He remembered what was in store for those who do not turn from their sin. The judgment, the wrath, the justice of God that are so much more severe than any hurt they can cause us on this earth. The reminder is when we are at our wit's end, when we feel like we cannot handle the trial, the difficulty, the slander, or the persecution, when we just want to lash out, we must turn to the Lord and remember this perspective. Practically, this means praying that the Lord would give you eyes to see the sinner, the accuser, the one that's hurting you, the way he sees them, and to take pity on them. Because you see the great danger they are in. The rest of Psalm 73 describes the comfort Asaph has in knowing that whatever may come, the Lord is walking beside him until life on this earth ends and God brings him into glory in the kingdom of heaven. You may have heard or even sung the words to verse 25. What or whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. What we need to ask ourselves in those difficult times when we're struggling with bitterness, when we're struggling to forgive is this. Is that really true of me? Is it really true that there's nothing on earth? Because when we can't move past the frustration and the bitterness when we struggle to forgive, we need to recognize that it's a struggle of desires between the earthly and the heavenly. It means that I do, in fact, desire something here on earth more than Christ. Because if Christ is my greatest desire, then I won't be seeking vengeance here on earth. I won't be seeking retaliation here on this earth. As Paul wrote in Colossians 3.1, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Oftentimes we put that into the categories of financial wealth or things like that, but vengeance falls right into that category. That is something that is of this earth, not of heaven. And we do this by reminding ourselves of the promises of God. By gathering together with other believers who help remind us of these truths. So what are the tools we have been given to deal with the bitterness, the frustration, the difficulty of forgiving when we've been sinned against, perhaps even grievously, severely, 
manage your expectations. Do not think that this is once and done. Do not think there is a switch that you're going to be able to flip with a simple prayer. Oftentimes, forgiveness and loving the other person is a long-term battle against sinful thoughts and attitudes. And then pray. But don't pray generically. We've talked about this. Pray specifically. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's that with thanksgiving that is so interesting to me. Because Paul says that your prayer when confronted with anxious or troubling requests, should be accompanied by thanksgiving. Really, that seems like an odd thing to add. If I'm being slandered, why would I take the time to add thanksgiving to my request? If I'm being persecuted, if I've been abused, why am I adding thanksgiving to my request? Shouldn't I be praying for it to stop? Well, first off, I don't think Paul is necessarily saying you're to express thanksgiving in that moment at being hurt and attacked. I do think there will come a day where you will give thanks for it as you look back at what the Lord has done through you in that situation. But here in Philippians 4, 6-7, through 7, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of the pain, I think Paul's letting us in on an important secret in this battle. You see, thanksgiving, giving thanks to God and recounting the innumerable blessings and provisions He has given in this life already, apart from what you're going through right now, changes your perspective. It's the how of how do we get our eyes from the trials and toils of this earth to heaven. How do I get my mind off this earth and get it into heaven? How do I stop thinking about this person? How do I get out of this hamster wheel of running over the same thoughts over and over and over again of bitterness and anger and resentment? How do I get out of this? By thanksgiving. It is one of the most practical tools we have been given in lifting our eyes from this earth to heaven. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 121, 1-2, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heavens and earth. When I give thanks with specificity, it completely alters my perspective so that it becomes increasingly difficult to complain about the trials of this life. Now, that doesn't mean that it's no longer hard. It does not mean we cease from praying for a change to the circumstances, a change within the other person. But it gives me much needed perspective. Especially if that change never comes in this life. Remember the instruction of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he goes on to say, For you love those who love you, or if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? We are not commended for doing what is easy. We are commended for doing what is hard. 
It is hard to love those who are difficult. But that is what we are called to do. And like Asaph, another tool that we have is corporate worship. Gathering together with other believers. Surround yourself with other believers who make you want to love and obey the Lord. Don't isolate yourself when difficulty comes. Don't isolate yourself ever. We need one another. Don't withdraw when things are difficult. That is precisely the time when you need other believers, when I need other believers. And yet the temptation is to pull back. In closing, I want to read a bit more of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It'll be familiar to many of you, but it provides us with an entire arsenal of weaponry and tactics to use in this war against bitterness and the fight for forgiveness in setting our mind on things above. I'm going to close by reading these words in Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. What we've already read this morning, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And here's where you place your mind. Whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. This is where we set our mind. This is how we fight against the flesh that doesn't want to forgive, that wants to hold on to the anger, to the bitterness, because it feels good in the moment, even though we know it's not right. It's by fixing our mind on the things above. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is overflowing with assistance in how we do battle against sin, specifically sin that makes it hard to forgive. Father, we've spent the past few weeks looking at the significance, the importance, the necessity of forgiveness. But Father, what we recognize and want to acknowledge this morning is that that is not only a hard thing to do, an impossible thing to do in our own strength, in our own power. Father, we need to cry out to you. We need to lean on you. We need to walk by the Spirit in these things and use the tools that you've given us in your word that have been provided there to put them into practice. Help us to do that. Father, we know that our own sanctification, our own life, our own peace, our own comfort, our own well-being is bound up in being able to do these things. And yet we lose sight of that as well when we seek 
justice and vengeance on this earth by our own means. Help us to put our mind, fix it firmly in things above. Let us, as the writer of Hebrews says, put our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 